Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. Today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. We've got Jack Ashby, who is Assistant Director at the University Museum of Zoology of Cambridge. Welcome to the show, Jack. Hi. Thanks for having me, Amelia. It's an absolute pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easy, easy question. What is your job? Ah, well, my job has kind of all my professional life, at least has three strings to it. As you said, I'm Assistant Director of the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. Um, I'll come back to that. My uh, second string is that I am a writer and public engagement kind of person who spends a lot of time writing and talking about how the natural world is presented to the world, particularly in museums or with Australian mammals. And that comes across as comes that involves kind of talking about the biases that, me, that humans inflict upon nature and how museums are kind of colonial structures and things like that. And then the third part is to spend a month or two a year uh, in Australia, in normal times at least, supporting wildlife NGOs and conservation programs at, at universities to do mammalian fieldwork on a voluntary basis. So being assistant director of the museum is quite broad. It, it covers kind of all areas of the museum's operations. So I have a really director a strategic overview of everything we do, but I work as with very closely with the public engagement teams. And I lead the collections team and the business services team. So how do we look after our stuff and how do people come to see it? It almost sounds like it's a bit of a license to do things that you think are interesting as well. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that would, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. But yeah, certainly I have plenty of stuff to do that I might not choose to do on a daily basis. You know, looking after it yeah, doesn't just involve of cool collections and amazing visitors, but also, you know, what's going wrong with our air conditioning systems today and looking after security and all that stuff. Um, or, you know, yeah, all the, all the problems um, that a large building, two million dead animals and 150,000 humans uh, present to you. These are a lot of things people don't normally think about at all. <laughs> <laughs> And and just in case you're wondering, I know this is an Australian STEM podcast, I've drawn the, it's not too tenuous link, but Jack does some really cool stuff with Australian mammals. And I was like, I'd like to see an international perspective on Australian mammals. I think that sounds interesting. So is there any particular part of your job that you'd like to talk about before we dive into it? Like, is there anything that you think people would find more interesting than other parts? <laughs> Hard to say. I think, I mean, like my job job is obviously the museum side of things and the engagement side of things, but happy to go wherever you want. Like, I think we'll see where it goes, I guess. <laughs> um, see where it goes. I mean, um, collections on the public side of things are obviously more interesting than the uh, air conditioning. <laughs> I, I suspect also I've had a number of people on this show who are particularly interested in public engagement and helping get their science across to a broader audience and particularly like beating any kind of disinformation that's out there. How have you got into that part of your work? Well, a wonderful thing about being a university museum, so we're attached to the, we're part of the zoology department at the University of Cambridge, um, but then we work with, you know, a lot of parts of the university. 
Um, really cool thing about university museums is that we bring our expertise in public engagement from the museum team and bring it together with the amazing research that's going on behind it. So it's a huge part of our jobs to find ways to get the public who are kind of more comfortable with coming into a museum than they are coming into a university. So to get the public to have ways of engaging with that live research. So yeah, you know, events, exhibitions are pretty traditional ways, but the, the kind of online opportunities, particularly this year, um, where all the museums in the UK have been locked down for nearly all of the last 12 months. Yeah, they've, and just kind of coming up with interesting events and interesting event platforms that aren't just have you had any particularly good events so far we had a really cool award-winning in fact event over the summer called zoology live and that is a kind of it has been an annual event in the museum over a weekend where we get loads of organizations from around the region to come together and talk about zoology talk about animals and well just like hundreds of people in hundreds of contributors thousands of people Come along. This year we had to pivot, so it was online. So we made it a week-long festival on YouTube, and kind of bizarrely, you see our like our mission is to engage the public with the natural world using our collections and our research. Um, but we don't really have access to our collections at the moment. So we're like, well, what can we do that's still kind of based on our mission? So it was let's just involve the public with with nature. So what what can people see around them, particularly kind of local to them? In the UK, kind of the guidance has been, you know, stay local, but get out and do your hour of exercise a day. So what can people see from their window? What can people see on their walk? Um, we're in their local parks and just get a load of experts to, to very engagingly talk about those things and how to, you know, do back garden survey or surveys is a strong word, but, you know, see what insects and, and spiders and things are in your garden and mollusks and birds. And yeah, it, it, so we, we kind of went that way and it went really well. Did anyone find anything in their backyard that you were, or that an expert was like, ooh, don't know if that should be there or that's really exciting? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Like, I don't think any, I don't think we discovered any new species this year. No, actually, in one of our previous events, we have discovered a new species in the, in the Botanic Gardens of, in Cambridge, a new species of fly, which is pretty cool. Like last uh, year before last, that happened, which is like amazing. Like in one of the most researched, corners of the world. It happens all the time. Obviously, species are discovered on an almost daily basis, but that was kind of neat that it was just literally the end of our road. Yeah, I would have thought that had been scoured by everyone for hundreds of years. (laughs) In fact, in in our collection, we have Charles Darwin's own collection of insects that he collected in Cambridge as a student. Um, he didn't go to his lectures. He went around uh, beetling, you would call it, catching catching beetles. So yeah, like yeah, obviously, as you say, the great and the good of a couple of centuries of of natural history have happened in Cambridge. But still, we've still got stuff to learn, which is neat. And I feel like that's a great lesson for well, science in general is even in something somewhere that's been kind of rather thoroughly picked over there's still the chance to find something new. That's a good little lesson for science in general. I mean, it's diminishing returns. <laughs> there are parts of the world where you're more likely to find species than central Cambridge, but still. <laughs> I realise we've, we've probably skipped over a core thing. And are you able to give the listeners a quick definition of what zoology is? Sure, zoology is, is just the study of animals. So you can do that kind of 
most obviously in two ways, and that's studying live animals in the field or in captivity, and that's more kind of behavioral, what are they about, what, how do they live their lives, what are they, you know, the mechanics of what they're physically doing. Um, and the other part is, is studying dead animals, uh, which we most often do in museums, and that's kind of on our terms rather on their terms. We can answer very different questions um, studying specimens than we can studying live animals. So how, you know, how are animals related, how are they physically built to work in their environment, to find food, find mates, to, to uh, survive, um, move around. That's, those questions are easily answered by kind of from specimens, but you need both parts, I think, of zoology, you need the live animals and the dead animals to get the whole picture. Are there any ethical issues with the dead animals? Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely. So most of our collection was collected, you know, prior to, well, prior to 1920, actually, but, you know, we were, we were founded in 1814. Um, so most of our collection is Victorian. And obviously people had very different attitudes to collecting back then. Collecting does continue today. Um, museums across the world, but it's done far more ethically, far more in consultation with local um, authorities, with a conservation in mind as well. Yeah, and the way we treat and display the animals, irrespective of when they're collected, when, when they're collected, obviously has ethical and legal considerations. So because your collection's older, do you then have different ethical issues than, say, like an Australian museum where everything is by default going to be a bit newer? Well, some of the Australian museums are no, are no older than a lot of the UK museums. Sorry, no younger than a lot of the UK museums. Like Particularly Victoria and Tasmania has had had old museums for a very long time. I'm not sure when the Australian Museum was found. But anyway, yeah, like, not not really. We continue to collect. A lot of large museums continue to collect. Uh, um, but we just have to make sure that everything is done legally and ethically. And there are legal implications for Victorian collection. For, I, say, I'm saying, I shouldn't say, use the word Victorian or Australian podcast. I mean 19th century rather than from the state of Victoria. Um, <laughs> Yep, it's not that like we as Victorians have a special set of rules over in the UK for how our animals are collected. That's not a thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you've got a lot of different things going on. Obviously, I'll have to come back to the good old days where you actually got to come to Australia and look at things. What does an average day at work look like for you, bearing in mind we don't live in average times, I guess? I always find it difficult to answer that question because like work, working across the kind of range of, of activity that I do in museums. So, you know, like, as I say, I work with the collections team who look after our collection, work with the business services and operations team who can welcome visitors and present the face of the museum, including marketing and exhibitions and things like that. And I work very closely with the public engagement team who do our events and schools and all things like that. So I prefer to answer what's an average week look like or what does last week look like? It's probably easier. So last week was nice because I did, sometimes I just do admin, especially this year. Um, last year, last week was nice. I had a few more, few more audience face, face things. So I taught a class to our second year ecology students at Cambridge about how museums present nature to the world, which was cool. Did a, a live event for a news broadcaster, Atlas Obscura, one evening, I planned for another event that we have coming up called Battle of the Beasts, where we pit two experts against each other on different categories. It's coming up at the end of the month. Like what, I'm, I, I am representing the platypus in best snout. I had a meeting about that. Um, and who, who are you up against? I'm up against crocodiles. <laughs> 
I mean, it's these platypuses certainly easy. I have no fears for this is success in that battle. And what else did I do? And yeah, I, I yeah, uh, one of my teams working on replacing all of our carcass freezers. So I had some spent some time considering the best freezers. Another of my team is looking at updating the process for how objects are entered into the museum and what happens when they arrive. So that's kind of a bit of process stuff. I did some student interviews about the ivory trade. And then I spent a lot of time doing emails and admin, which is also true. Every week of every every profession in the world, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's um the trick is finding the bit about the careers that isn't the emails. <laughs> yep. So we might not focus on the emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about the carcass phrases? <laughs> well, specimens come into museums whole very often. So, you know, an animal dies and then we don't we can't do much with it except freeze it when it arrives because it takes a lot of time and effort to process the specimen down. So for example, a year, I don't know, it was two years ago, we, we acquired the largest snake in Europe, which had died at a zoo in the UK. And it's like 17, oh, how long? I forget how long it is. I better not say out, <laughs> uh, out loud. Anyway, it's a big snake. And so when it died, obviously we have to move pretty quickly. So it's set, sat in our freezer waiting for us to have the opportunity to process it down as a skeleton. That's quite difficult. <laughs> Sometimes carcasses stay in the freezer for a very long time, like decades, because they might have been acquired for student dissection or research, in which case um, we're waiting for someone to want to use them whole. And we might have the opportunity to taxidermy things. So, yeah, we, we all museums, all large collecting museums have these freezers. Some of ours are a bit old, so we're looking to replace them before things get bad. <laughs> and if one of those freezers defrosts, it gets pretty good. Yeah, no, we don't want to think about that. Or the smell. No. <laughs> the smell is burning. Yeah. That's macabre. Like that you go into these beautiful curated museums and you see these like lovely, somehow quite elegant skeletons and somewhere in a basement there's freezers <laughs> with animals. Yeah, and I mean like that's what I I spend a lot of <laughs> a lot of my time in writing is about how you know, how do you go from one to the other and what has happened to get from the carcass to the displaced specimen. And like a snake, a, a snake, a very long snake, that is thousands of identical looking puzzle pieces, thousands of vertebrae, thousands of ribs. We've got to make sure we go back in the right order, which is quite a piece of work. Which is why we didn't do it immediately when it arrived. <laughs> you went just like, yes, let's go. We've got this. Like you're like, let's take a minute, have a think. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I was once involved uh, tangentially with, the burying of a whale skull is separate from the body because the museum thought, uh, the Victorian Museum thought they might come back and get it when it was less whaley 10 or 20 years down the track. Obviously, that's one way of dealing with the problem is just to bury it, come back later when the worms and things have done their job. How do you, like, you can't do that with a snake because the bones are so fine. Can I ask what the process is? Or is that like not your remit? No, no. It's, I mean, it's not my, I don't do it myself. But yeah, there are kind of three, no, let's say, how many options are there? Let's say four options for skeletalizing. And yeah, big animals, bury them is the way, you know, particularly whales. That's, yeah, so much easier than other options. And, you know, there was an apocryphal story that at the Natural History Museum in London, just in the gardens, there was a whale buried that people have forgotten about, like a huge blue whale or fin whale or something that uh, when they built the extension, the Darwin Centre, 
that, I think that myth was busted because they dug the foundations and there was no whale. So yeah, bury things. And actually you can do it with quite small animals. You just have to kind of put them in like little muslin bags or something so that the animals can get in, but the um, bones don't get out. That is an option. And it's, it's a, you know, actually burying is probably the cleanest and least disgusting option. Other ones involve macerating. So you kind of cut away as much of the flesh as you can. And then you dissolve it, really, is not the word, but that's what it looks like, in biological washing powder. So the enzymes in biological washing powder, which are, like, obviously designed to eat away at proteins and fats, also work on carcasses. So that's a very effective way. It's quite smelly. And then the third option is that we have live colony. We don't have one in Cambridge, but um, a lot of museums that collect um, have live colonies of of beetles, of domestic beetles that are the kind of museum's smallest employees. You cut away as much of the soft tissue as you can, and then you put them in these colonies of beetles, and they do the cleaning for you. So they eat the flesh and soft tissues away, and that's that's very effective. It's quite risky though because those beetles, the domestic beetles, are on the one hand very handy museum employees, but on the other hand, one of the biggest risks that museums face because they can eat our collection. So if they escape from the colony, not only do they eat you know, the carcass, fresh carcass, but they can eat skins and insects and completely devour a museum's um, collection, which is yeah, not great. Are they really employees? Like, do you pay them? Or well, we pay them in dead beaver, you know, whatever you happen to have collected that week. <laughs> yeah, right. That kind of, I would have thought that's a, a good argument for doing this whole process off-site. So then the beetles can have like rain of some sort of skeletalizing warehouse somewhere and you don't need to worry about them sneaking in and eating, the, I don't know, rabbit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some museums do do that. I'll put them on the roof or something. Do you have a favourite thing in the collection? My favourite thing in Cambridge is uh, a whole platypus. I think well, you may have gathered platypus my favourite animal. And the platypus we have is absolutely stunning. It's in a swimming pose with its webs kind of in the in the just about to draw forward to so the half fold up which is amazing but hey I've, I've known this specimen for a long time but it's only recently discovered that actually it looks like taxidermy but it's freeze-dried which is an amazing process so taxidermy taxidermy is you know you you remove the skin very very carefully from the animal and then you rebuild a form that reshapes the insides of the animal because obviously they can rot and then you preserve the skin and shape it around this artificial form. It's very, very difficult. And uh, freeze-drying looks the same at the end result, but the, the insides are still there, and it's done by the process of, of, kind of freezing and desiccating in a vacuum so that all the moisture is removed. And it's yeah, this specimen is particularly beautiful. It's kind of neat to think that they've, all of its insides are still there. It was gifted to President of the Royal Society in the 1960s when he came to um, Australia and asked, what do, you, you know, what do you want as a memento of your visit? And he had been told to ask for a platypus. You know, Australia is rightfully very um, protective of its natural, of its animal, you know, animal plant resources. It, it's very hard to get a license to export one. And the opportunity was there to get one. The reason why people in Cambridge wanted them is that they were doing a study into how muscle, animal muscle, human muscle particularly, carries blood. Uh, sorry, sorry, carries oxygen from the blood. 
And they thought that if they could get a sample of myoglobin, which is a protein in, in uh, the structure involved, from another mammal, from other mammals, particularly one that's so distantly related to the platypus, it would help understand how human myoglobin works, particularly when things go wrong, like when genetic coding goes wrong. So it was kind of, it's an important study, scientific research, human health, but also it's created this absolutely stunning, beautiful specimen in a museum. Did their research go anywhere? Like, did that help? Did the platypus help? I, th- I think so. I think so. I don't, I don't, does it help? Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, there, there, there was publication, there was a, a research group on myoglobin that studied that. It wasn't the only outcome of the, of the research, the only study of the research, but um, the only animal involved in the study, should I say. But yes, it, it did help. I, I feel kind of proud of that, though. Like a little platypus somehow was involved in that whole process. <laughs> However, when I think about freeze-dried things, like a freeze-dried strawberry, they're kind of shriveled and they've gone, how does the platypus not look like the platypus equivalent of a freeze-dried strawberry? I often wonder that myself. <laughs> I think obviously strawberries have a lot less structure than the insides of a platypus, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a relatively... Strawberries don't have the skeleton. Yeah, and... It is a perfectly sensible question, but um, I don't quite know. I've, never, I've often wondered that, but I don't know the answer. It was only developed in the 1950s and 60s as a, as a process, and it only works on... In fact, I think this platypus is, this, is the specimen I've seen it done successfully to that's the largest um, because it's very difficult to get uh, the moisture inside of a large animal. Yeah, I don't know, though. Like, <laughs> why, why they don't look more shriveled? I don't know. I'm going to have to find, like, a freeze-drying expert now and interview them to be like why is this platypus okay (laughs) let me know when you do (laughs) how have you ended up in this particular job because I feel like it probably wasn't told to you when you were at high school that you could be the assistant director of the university museum like how have you got to be where you are now yeah I spent all of high school, I have no idea what I wanted to do. I was like, super interested in animals. So some things are logical, I figured, but I didn't know what. And then I went to study zoology at Cambridge and in fact was taught in the museum that I now work in, which I, I like. And there's a, <laughs> a kind of moment. So we would, we had, we spent a lot of our class time in the museum in a, in a space in the museum where we kind of left our own devices with the specimens we'd have a, we'd go through a week. A group of animals a week, just learning about them, uh, what the features of those groups are. And I, you know, I remember just one evening I was sat in there on my own, and the museum at the time, you know, 20 years ago, really, didn't have a, a much of a public face. It was just there for the university. It was open to the public a few hours a week, but, you know, there were no public facing staff. And it's like, oh, I could work in museums and I could do education in museums, naturalist museums. And that was where I wanted to go. And that was a kind of an epiphany in my last year of university, thanks to the, you know, what my experience in, the, in of learning in museums and how important teaching with objects had been for me. Uh, so from there, I worked in a science centre um, for a year in Bristol, initially front of house and you know, as an explainer out in the galleries. And then I moved into the learning team to work on schools and family learning programmes. Then after a year, I moved to um, the Grant Museum of Zoology in London, at University College London, which is a, another small university zoology collection. And I was there as the learning manager to, for the first seven years to turn the museum into a public-facing space. 
So again, it had only been used for university classes for you know, 150 years or whatever, uh, more than that. And then my job was to kind of open it up to the public, create learning programs, create exhibitions, create interpretation. And then after seven years there, I, in that job, I became the museum manager. And then that's a similar role to what I'm doing now in Cambridge where I've been for three years. And how did you develop the interest in Australian mammals? Well, actually, it's the same story. Like in the in one of those classes, in our week on egg-laying mammals, <laughs> I was introduced uh, to platypuses initially by uh, my lecture agent Friday, who still who's the who's the who was the um, curator of vertebrates in the museum, and he's still like it's really nice. He's here, still a part of the museum community as emeritus. Um, but it was that specimen I just talked about, the freeze-dried platypus, and she didn't say he he was the one that did the protein study. At the, um, in the 60s, but he um, didn't say it was freeze-dried at the time, but just uh, showing us that specimen made, and talking about the amazing nature of uh, egg-laying mammals kind of really got, got me hooked, and then from there I went to marsupials, and from there the other Australian mammals, and yeah, it's, it's kind of, it started there with objects and museums, yeah, that you know, sparked a real passion that's now a massive part of my life, which is nice. So do you think if you'd seen an echidna first, would your life have been different? <laughs> well, no, because echidnas, I mean, my, my animal rankings goes number one, platypus, number two, wombat, number three, echidnas. So echidnas are still up there, super amazing. And um, we did see, so we, we have, you know, we saw echidnas that same day, I'm sure, but it was the story of the platypus that yeah. is venom and massive, massively sensitive electro-reception, um, which Echidnas do have a less, lesser extent. They got me hooked, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of echidnas too. Have you seen them both in the wild? Mm, many, many times, yeah. yeah. Very special. Especially echidnas. They're hilarious. They're just sort of like boofing through the bush. Like they, they just don't care. They're just like shoulder first, boom. I'm spiky. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I have a kind of my own personal taxonomy of animals, which is animals I like and animals I like less. And the ones, the ones that I like are kind of universally... I call them bumpity bum animals that walk as if they're kind of internal monologue. Unlike platypuses, echidnas, and wombats are, are definitely bumpity bum animals. <laughs> I'm trying to think of another animal that like fits so beautifully into that description. I'm like, I don't know. I haven't met a bee. I, I go with marmots, which are basically rodents. Yeah, the chunk, the chunky. Rodents. So yeah, marmots, beavers, and, and marmots are basically rodent versions of wombats and bears. They all kind of bumpity bump around. That's hilarious. You've totally thrown me there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sort of curious. Like often, as Australians, we see uh, Americans, occasionally Europeans, kind of freaking out about Australian uh, fauna. And it's sort of like, how do you people live there? It's also deadly, blah, blah, blah. I'm sort of curious how Australian fauna over in Cambridge, how do people perceive it? Are they like, oh, it's not all deadly snakes and there are bumpity boom like little dudes? Or are they just like, oh, no, well, platypuses also have the like spiny thing and it's just, it's cute, but it's also like going to get me. How, how do people perceive us from an animal perspective <laughs> well, i'm glad you asked that i promise promise to listen out there this isn't a uh, planted question but my next book is about exactly that like how does the world come to know and come to talk about australian animals 
And a real big, really big theme is that, yeah, as you say, one, one thing is everything in Australia is trying to kill you. I'll come back to that. The other thing is that Australian animals are often presented as kind of weird, bizarre, curious. It's like that, that they are kind of under, undervalued as just little evolutionary curiosities, little evolutionary oddities, primitive even. And you often said of this, of the particularly egg laying mammals, platypuses and echidnas, that they are primitive. Now, no living species, no living complex species can be primitive. It's complete scientific nonsense. But I think it's really interesting that the world kind of thinks about Australian animals as, as odd and bizarre first. And my argument is there's kind of a hangover from colonial attitudes that are kind of writing Australia off as a little bit inferior or a lot inferior in some places. And that's had massive implications for the conservation of Australian animals. As, as many people know, Australia is has the best mammals, but is also the worst place on earth to be a mammal. More mammals have gone extinct in Australia than any other country in the world. Um, in fact, over a third of all mammal extinctions since European invasion in Australia have been in Australia. It's, it's so, and I think that that is linked to the way we think about them. It's hard to conserve them because people think that they are kind of destined to fail as a nature of some kind of, um, alleged inferiority, which just isn't there. So it's quite, it's a, it's a big topic. But coming back to the everything in Australia is trying to kill you thing, I also think that's a massive colonial hangover. And, and I mean, I say that aware that Australians themselves perpetuate that story. Like They like the idea, I think, many Australians like the idea of, you know, we're living life on the edge, we're surrounded by all these deadly animals. So yeah, that's the story. Australia has these dead, is the deadly home of deadly animals, but actually it really isn't. Sure, there are plenty of, high, of, of snakes with very potent venom, and there are quite a plenty of uh, aggressive snake species in Australia. But very, very, very few people die from snake bite in Australia, whereas tens of thousands of people die from snake bite in Asia, in South America, in Africa. No reasons for that. Obviously, the likelihood of encounter and the, and the availability of medicine and education around behavior around snakes is a factor in that but kind of my my general argument is that yes there are venomous things in australia there are snakes and there are spiders there are centipedes there are trees that will sting you there are octopuses there are ants there are platypuses as you say but actually those things exist in pretty much every other continent except for europe but in addition every other continent has large predators and Australia doesn't have any large predators. So I would, in fact, argue that Australia is the least dangerous continent, except for Antarctica, when it comes to the, the animals that live in. Oh, yeah, continent. Continent. Like, if we're talking about country, like, the place to be is New Zealand. No, no snakes. <laughs> yeah. We do have crocodiles. You do have crocodiles and sharks. Eat absolutely. You. But land-based, land-based predators, you know, the worst you're going to come across is a dingo or a parenti. And, you know, I don't think many people get attacked by those. No, and I, I, as a young person, I never understood how people were like, Australia is so dangerous. I'm like, there's tigers and it was when I heard in America they've got the, the mountain tiger thing, no, mountain lions. And I'm like, you just drive driving around and there's a mountain lion? I'm like, that's not cool. Like, <laughs> that's dangerous. That's dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Back to the idea that our animals are primitive, which Totally, I can see some, sorry, I'm trying not to swear. Um, I, I can see people coming up with this idea. 
But clearly they have never met a kangaroo up close. Like that is not a primitive animal. No, indeed. Like what, what platypus, what, sorry, what kangaroos do is absolutely amazing. Well, all, well, any mammal does, any animal does any amazing things. But yeah, kangaroos are incredible. Their reproduction system is incredible. It's, yeah, it's, it's just nonsense to say anything primitive about them. It's just people, you, they still want to pick on us. <laughs> Very strange. That's right. That's right. And it's all subconscious. I'm sure it's all subconscious. No one is setting out to try to underwrite, uh, write off Australia as, as, you know, backward. But that is the subconscious um, issue at play, I think. The other thing I want to ask you about is in Australia, it's not super well known that we used to have megafauna. I, I think I only found out through my geography degree and I was like, ooh, okay, that's a bit, that's a bit funky. Didn't didn't know that. Always just thought a big red kangaroo was like huge. Is it is it known in other parts of the world that we used to have megafauna? Yeah, I think yeah, it's I think some uh, species are far more famous than others. So in Cambridge, we have a diprotodon uh, skeleton, a cast of a diprotodon skeleton, and that's um, for those in tropical. A lot of people are familiar with diprotodon, but as you say, red kangaroo is the largest um, living marsupial. The big red. Big red male would be about 90 kilos. His diprotodon could reach two and a half tons, you know, four meters long, two meters tall, relative to the wombat, similar shape, but, but kind of longer leg than a wombat. So it's the size of a rhino. And that's, that's not far more famous. And it was our, our skeletons, as I say, it's a cast. It was mass produced, this cast by a company in New York, Woods Scientific, which supplied museums the world over. So the diprotons are out there. They are there are diprotons in plenty of of museums uh, in the UK and not uh, alive. Not alive, not sadly. Alive. Sadly, no. Yeah, we have these these particular skeletons, but I, I think that is where a lot of people's um, knowledge of the megafauna ends. So they're kind of the giant sloth equivalents, the panda equivalents, the alleged rhino and hippo equivalents are far less well known. And the giant possum equivalent. <laughs> they told us in uni about this, like three, yeah, obviously because everything you learn in uni is accurate. But a this three meter long carnivorous possum that that could like climb buildings and stuff. I've always thought that's a great like basis for a story. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that. I'm not sure which animal you're referring to. Like the problem problem is that a lot of these looking for modern equivalents and then we call it the marsupial possum or the marsupial lion because that one's quite good um, or the marsupial hippo marsupial panda marsupial tapir that's we think of, like a lot of these um comparisons are controversial at best let's say yeah i, I know the the only climbing i'm not, I'm not, not doubting what you're saying the only one i know about is uh, it's a good kind of known to be a carnivorous a large carnivorous climber was the marsupial lion, Thylacolea, which was related to wombats again. So, so more distantly related to possums, you know, the same uh, order of, of marsupial. Yeah, Thylacolea has got the bit of big stabbing thumbs and, and climbing claws, massive uh, slicing molars, um, like, much like a lion. And in fact, you know, there's, there's some only half hearted, half, what's the word? Um, people joke about it, but they're, <laughs> But they may, uh, it may be true that um, Thalakalia, the marsupial lion, is the uh, origin of the drop bear story because they appear to have been able to climb trees and then pounce down. 
Maybe it's not just a kind of a myth for colourful toys. I forget about drop bears. <laughs> totally forget about them. <laughs> You're taking your life in your own hands every time you go outside then. Be warned. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, you know, they, they breed a strong down here, right? <laughs> I, I feel like this uh, the, the issue with trying to draw similarities between something giant that's now extinct and like a current living animal that'd be like if giraffes went extinct and we're like oh it's kind of like a horse but like it's got a longer neck so it's a horseish horse-ish it just confused people yeah and in fact like all of the the earliest um descriptions of australian mammals particularly hopping mammals are completely like you cannot hold the the image of the animal in your head whilst reading what um you know, james kirk joseph banks and the uh, his the the people that came before him before them wrote about helping marsupials that they encountered around Australia. It's like, and each of them had read each other's accounts, but none of them had recognised they were looking at the same animal because the descriptions were so bad. Because they kept saying it's like a greyhound, it's like a deer, it's like a beaver. It's you know none of none of the comparisons. <laughs> and the greyhound thing really annoys me because on uh, the endeavour with, Jay- with um, James Cook and Joseph Banks, they had two greyhounds and they had the kangaroos and the greyhounds in sight at the same time and they still said that kangaroos looked like greyhounds. Um, very lazy. That's such a... But in fairness, like, you know, they were looking at something a bit different. When when you get to it, when you have for sure, for sure. Like, use of foreigner to one of these animals for the first time and they just look at... A kangaroo hopping, they're just like, that can't be real. That's like illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. I did an exhibition a couple of years ago that was based around that um, very famous George Stubbs kangaroo painting, which was the first European painting of an Australian animal that was commissioned on the back of, of Cook's First Voyage. And one of the activities we did with the kids, because Joseph Stubbs, George Stubbs, the artist, had never seen a kangaroo, he was described it. And seen some sketches, we got kids who came to the exhibition to try and uh, blindfold describe an animal to their friends without, you know, using this as a line um, and describe what it looked like and get the other person to draw what they saw. And it's so hard. Like, yeah, <laughs> describing an animal that you're completely unfamiliar with is difficult. But, but my point is that these European explorers used comparisons that were completely inaccurate like completely unhelpful, rather than saying it's this big and it's does um, this. It's like it took them over uh, four weeks to say that kangaroos jumped on two legs, which I think is the most noticeable thing that most people would just say about a kangaroo. I do sometimes feel like the people who are doing that kind of exploring stuff are possibly living on a different planet. <laughs> oh, that's what I was about to ask. How many of these animals have you eaten? Well, not many. I'm vegetarian, so I have eaten. Oh. <laughs> I have, well, I've been a vegetarian for, I don't know, 12 years. I've been coming to Australia for longer than that. So, yeah, sure, I've eaten kangaroo and all the other things you can get in Australian restaurants quite easily. I haven't eaten anything uh, particularly exotic, I don't think. I tell you, there, there was a while there where one of the burger chains here did a coat of arms burger where, you could, where it was kangaroo and emu mixed together. <laughs> right. I've eaten emu. Yeah, both very nice. Both very good to you. And in fact, like because kangaroos are grazing animals that don't produce much methane, if we could convince the world's meat eaters to shift away from cows and sheep 
would burp out a lot of methane. The world would be a lot better if it um, ate more kangaroo. It's low fat, which can make it a bit tricky to cook with, but you can make a really good lasagna. Exactly. And can't wait to see how much hate mail I get for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got any advice for a young person who's listening to this interview and they're like, wow, that guy has the coolest job. How do I get that job? <laughs> or or all, the, all the people who are finishing up their PhDs and they've been thinking about science communication, they're like, ooh, this also sounds good. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, or how do I, you know, what advice did you give someone to avoid accidentally falling into this job? Um, no, how to get, like, the museum sector is, uh, is, to be honest, very competitive. So we get, you know, potentially a couple of hundred applications for an entry-level job, which means that there's some really unreasonable things asked by some museums of kind of people starting their career, which I'm trying to argue against generally, which is like, like you know, having a qualification in museum studies or something for an entry-level job, I think is absurd. Um, so my, my advice is, you know, try and, try and get some experience. So unfortunately, a lot of museums expect people to have done voluntary work for a very long time, which is, you know, volunteers are amazing. But having a requirement for people to have worked for free for a long time, I think is unreasonable. So if there is any other way you can get experience, you know, if you can volunteer, that's great. Um, and that was stating that, you know, there are occasionally as paid internships or as part of people's studies or, you know, work experience placements, any, get any way you can get some experience in, in museums. And then crucially, if you're there, or even if you're just kind of visiting museums, the big question that I look for, and if I'm, if I'm employing someone is, you know, does this person ask, can this, this person work out why museums are doing what they're doing? You know, why have, if it's a documentation job, so if it's, you know, cataloging collections, why would a museum choose to document that draw before that draw of animals? You know, like, <laughs> this, is a, this is a pretty abstract <laughs> example, I guess, you know, like, when, what is the strategy for doing these things? Or, you know, when you're, if you're just visiting museums, you can still ask the same questions. So, what is what is this museum trying to get across in its displays? Can I guess the museum's mission statement by walking around it? You know, that's not just true of natural history museums. It's, that's, that's anything. Like, just think about why museums are doing what they're doing. And I think that is the most important thing that I look for, understanding the reasons um, behind decisions that institutions are making, or at least having a good guess of what they might do. That's, that's really interesting advice. It's kind of strategic thinking and also like the re- reverse engineering strategic thinking as well, being able to take it backwards. Exactly, yeah. When, when I've got a science communication classes, university students, the first thing I ask them is, why do we have museums? Why do you know, national, regional governments, uh, universities, local authorities, whatever, fund museums what is the point of this collection and it's it's not that people have you know it's not surprising i guess but they they've never really thought about it before and like what what is this museum for is i think it's kind of a fundamental question that we get just more people thought about i was gonna ask is there an increasing interest in visiting museums like from the general public is there an appetite for like core zoology stuff and Obviously, you've mentioned that the museums that you've worked for haven't always been open to the public. Is the public, is there increasing interest in museums from the public? 
Sure. I don't know about trends, but certainly like, museums are um, a massive part of the cultural economy. Like they, and natural history particularly. In the UK, we've done studies that show that natural history is the most popular of all the museum disciplines. So, you know, more popular than art, more popular than history, than, than social history, archaeology, anthropology. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. Natural history is amazing. Interesting because it's also often the least well-funded sector of the uh, museum uh, of the museum industry. But yeah, there's it's like Natural Museum in London. I think it's four million visitors a year. We are, you know, relatively we're a relatively large collection, but a relatively small museum. If you know what I mean, we get 150,000 visitors a year. You know, kind of you know, down outside of yeah, like there is a huge interest. And I think you know, science hasn't done great in the last let's say, decade worldwide, you know, there's been a decline in trust in experts and a decline in trust in science. I think one outcome of the last 12 months of coronavirus is a kind of reinvigoration of, of uh, an interest in science and a kind of trust in science. And I think, you know, this that is going to, I hope, spark, spark even more interest in people having science careers, young people having science careers. You know, there's never, there's never been a, Kind of problem in recruiting for science, but I think it's becoming going to become even more popular now. At least I hope so. There's hope. There's hope. Are there? We've, we've obviously talked about a couple of myths that are out there in in the fields that you work in. Are there any other myths that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust that really bug you that turn up a lot? <laughs> well, you know, when I first started at museums, a lot of my my friends thought that my job is basically dusting. You know, there's this this dusty old uh, stuff mindset about museums, vision of museums. And, you know, when there's new species discovered or if a museum has some kind of announcement about a discovery in its collection, the, the headline is always, you know, hidden in the museum or a dusty old museum cabinet turns out to have a new species of whatever. And, like, museums have got Let's don't get me wrong, museums have got centuries old things. There is no there is an amount of dust. But they're not <laughs> dusty, you know, and it's not hidden. They've been sitting in a museum in plain sight, accessed by researchers. Fact is, if you've got millions of objects in your collection, you can't look at them all every year and say, is this different to all of the other bandicoots, whatever we've been looking at? And most museums uh, most new species described from specimens that have been in museums for decades. So the the idea that we are old and dusty is wrong uh, and just very misguided. And kind of the the reason that I say that museums are the least funded part of the sector is because people think this. You know, like they think it's just for kids as well. Natural history. Now, obviously, kids do love history because natural history is amazing and kids are clever. But in actuality, natural history museums are the only kind of museums that can and are saving the planet. You know, our museum collections are the world's best data repository for um, environmental decline over the last two centuries. It's the, what we know about how the world has changed and therefore what we can do to help comes from museums. And people, like, museums aren't very good at communicating that, so that's definitely on us. But, you know, that's my answer to your question. That's why I'd like people to, to know about the museum sector. So we are can and are saving the world through our centuries-old collections. So what we're going to take away from that, listeners, is 
A, museums are awesome and you should go visit them. But B, if your local museum or whatever has a membership, you should definitely take one out and support them in saving the planet. Exactly. Do you have anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to or that you'd like, yeah, that you'd like everyone listening to give a virtual high five to, someone who's doing an awesome job and deserves a bit of recognition? So as we were talking about uh, conservation, uh, as the Australian podcast, I'd definitely shout out to some of the conservation NGOs in Australia So that I've done good work with, so our recovery in South Australia, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy all over Australia. Are doing amazing science-based conservation, so definitely organisations worth supporting, worth um, following. Yeah. Awesome. Lots of high-fives to them. And I'm going to give some high-fives to museums saving the world and being a little bit too modest about it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jack. This has been awesome. Hopefully a nice wild ride for all the listeners and hopefully everyone's got something good to take away. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 